Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then you can also check out my blog, and that is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is July 18th, 2021. And in this episode, I want to talk about a very interesting interview that Mark Emmert gave on July 15th, just a few days ago, to a quote-unquote small group of reporters. And it's a really interesting interview because Mark Emmert has done a 180 on some of the most fundamental components of the NCAA's strategy to obtain the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation, and also a 180-degree turn on some of the basic roles that the NCAA has played historically. And it's really a stunning about face. And I don't want to make too much of it because I think in this statement, I'm going to read what the NCAA says about Mark Emmert's interview and his thoughts on July 15th. And they published a statement on their website. And like all the other statements that are on the website, it is specifically designed to create a narrative that that is favorable to whatever the needs of the day are for the NCAA. And in this case, I think the the need of the day is really more about Mark Emmert than the NCAA, because I think he's in an image rehabilitation mode on the backside of this name, image, and likeness debacle and and having that really fall apart on him. But I, I do think that this interview is important because it may be a preview for how the NCAA is thinking as it is trying to pick up the pieces and find itself a role in college sports because it's really in a battle for relevance right now. And one of the first things I want to observe is that this uh, interview and then the articles that came out of it and then this statement that was on the NCAA website looks like it was led by Emmert. So there's no suggestion in this statement, in this article, that the Board of Governors was involved in this or the Division One Board of directors or that this was an official NCAA policy. So it's not quite clear whether Emmert was kind of going his own way on this. So I just want to identify some of the major themes that Emmert addresses and then just read some of the headlines that came from reporters after this interview. And then I'm going to get into the NCAA statement because it is a classic piece of propaganda. I think the dominant theme here was that Emmert was saying that we need to reimagine the organization of the NCAA and hence of college sports and decentralize some of the functions that the NCAA had been performing at the national level and send it back down to the conferences and then back down to the schools, which is precisely what happened when the NCAA went belly up on name, image, and likeness, when they just waved the white flag and dumped all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions without any notice, without any pre-planning. It was really just an, an absolute failure of leadership at the national office. And what happened in the process of that nil dump was that the institutions were really put 
into a position that the institutions were in for the first part of the 20th century in college sports, and that was home rule which meant that the, the institutions were responsible for putting together the policy on nil. They were responsible for enforcing it. They were responsible for integrating it into all of the principles that may apply both at the institutional level and at the conference level. That is a fundamental shift from the primary purpose that the NCAA has served since the 1950s, which was as a very powerful national organization that had meaningful enforcement powers and was the guardian of this overarching compensation limit that was really the glue that bound all of the in-system stakeholders, or, and particularly the big-time football interests and the money-making products. So the NCAA has built its mission around acquiring national authority, and that began with Walter Byers, and it, it has extended into this perfect storm, and that is precisely what the NCAA was trying to do in Congress to not only enhance its national authority, but to lock it in at the federal level and basically have the business model federalized, to have the compensation limits federalized, to have the complete regulatory authority of the NCAA federalized. And after that fell apart, all of a sudden, Mark Emmert is now talking about home rule. That's essentially what he's talking about here. And let me just give you some of the headlines from the news articles that came out from this. Let's see. This one's from the website, The Athletic. It says, NCAA's Mark Emmert proposes smaller governing role, more power to conferences. And then let's see, this is, uh, looks like it's an AP story. And it's titled, NCAA's Mark Emmert says, this is the right time to consider decentralized, deregulated college sports. And then USA Today, NCAA President Mark Emmert envisions smaller role for organizations organization in college sports. And then let's see, the New York Times had a slightly more cynical headline, and I think probably a more accurate one. But uh, the Times says, NCAA chief under pressure says college sports may need reorganization. So that was basically the theme, but that is a theme that is just so profoundly in conflict with everything that the NCAA has done to enhance and cement in its authorities as a national regulatory body going back 70 years. And again, all these articles really were built around the message the NCAA wanted to convey. And it's not clear whether any of the authors of these articles were among the small group of reporters. There didn't appear to be a lot of critical analysis beyond the press release quality of this interview. So it's not clear whether these whether these newspapers are, are really taking Emmert seriously here or whether they're just publishing the, the press release. It's hard to tell, but there's a very coherent message that comes out of it, and that's consistent with NCAA public relations strategies, and I think consistent with this notion that you control the narrative by calling the, the, the interview, defining the terms of the interview, and then having a small group of what i believe are probably NCAA-friendly reporters getting the message out. So let me just quickly just go through this statement. I'm going to build this episode around this statement that came out from the NCAA. And uh, let's see, this statement is about a page long, and I think I can get through it fairly 
quickly, but I'm going to stop along the way at, at important points to talk about what the messaging is here, because this is a piece of propaganda, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, as I usually do. This is clearly designed to influence public perception, and it is loaded with false narratives or narratives that are fundamentally inconsistent with positions the NCAA and Mark Emmert have taken, particularly over the last couple of years in their quest to gain complete iron-fisted control over the college sports uh, regulatory market and to immunize themselves from any external regulatory threats. So the, the title of this is really interesting. It's titled Emmert continues push for change in college sports. And then there's a, a subtitle, kind of a sub-tagline, and, and both of these are in bold letters. And it says, the time is now to keep thinking differently. And then Emmert goes through all the changes that he envisions for the relationship between the NCAA and the in-system stakeholders and how it's going to think about its role going forward. But in the, the title, and the subtitle, you get the false impression that Mark Emmert is simply continuing his push for change in college sports as if he has been a visionary and a pioneer in moving college sports into the 21st century. And it says the time is now to keep thinking differently, not to start thinking differently, but to keep thinking differently. The use of the word continues and then the word keep clearly suggest that Mark Emmert has really been on the vanguard of promoting all this pro-student-athlete change and this modernization of college sports. And that couldn't be further from the truth, because when you go back and you look at what the NCAA was actually trying to do in its campaign in Congress and also in the Austin suit, it was designed to turn the clock back on athletes' rights to the 1950s and to lock in a status quo that exists in the beginning of of the third decade of the 21st century that would make the NCAA business model a basically a, a federal product. <laughs> you know, this Iron Throne campaign for absolute antitrust immunity, the complete elimination of states and state legislatures as external regulatory threats, and the elimination of any possibility that athletes could be deemed employees would essentially federalize the NCAA's compensation limits and therefore its business business model. So this isn't progressive at all. And I just want to say at the very beginning here that if the NCAA had gotten what it wanted from Congress in 2020, or if the United States Supreme Court had granted some form of antitrust immunity to the NCAA, Mark Emmert's not having this discussion. The NCAA is not having this discussion. So Mark Emmert is only pivoting here, and this is a big pivot, because external regulatory threats, the very external regulatory threats that he wants to eliminate, those forces have put the NCAA in a position where it has to step back and look at how it can remain relevant in college sports and then how it can position itself going forward to make it appear as if it has been in control of the narrative and that it is uh, genuinely interested in bringing its business model into the 21st century. And before I talk about the substance of this statement, 
statement that was on the NCAA website. I just want to note the title of this episode, and I talk about the memory hole and Mark Emmert basically shoving 70 years of NCAA history down the memory hole. And that, of course, is a reference to George Orwell's 1949 book, 1984. And remember, the central character there, the main character there was Winston Smith, who was kind of an everyman. He worked in the Ministry of Truth, and the Ministry of Truth was actually in the business of rewriting history to make it appear as if everything that the government had predicted came true, everything that it did was absolutely correct. And if there was something that was inconvenient in the reality of what happened, they just went back and and literally rewrote the newspaper for that day. So Winston was part of that ministry of truth. And this is really the NCAA ministry of truth here, because what Mark Emmert is doing here is just a breathtaking rewrite of history. And it's really amazing that he can, in in large measure, get away with this. I've talked about the forces that surround big time college sports and how much they are a part in many ways of the entire business model. And that's true with the media, particularly the sports media. But some of these articles that I, I mentioned were not from the the sports pages. They were from the news pages. And I've talked a bit about all of the powerful influences that the NCAA surrounds itself with and uses in many ways to rewrite history or to massage the facts to create a public narrative that is really a false narrative. And almost all those narratives go to supporting its commercial and business interests. This is a public relations campaign. So again, I don't want to make too much of this interview and these largely favorable articles that came out, at least favorable to the extent that they reinforced and amplified Emmert's message. But one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode on this interview and then what has come out of it is that this is a perfect example of the NCAA acting as the ministry of truth and rewriting history and taking inconvenient history and just shoving it down the memory hole. So I just want to start with the first paragraph of this statement, the first two paragraphs. The first paragraph says, NCAA President Mark Emmert addressed the media Thursday at a critical time in college sports. Interim policy has created new opportunities for college athletes to use their name, image, and likeness, but state laws on the topic vary across the country. According to Emmert, the door is open for more change. And then there's a quote from Emmert. The new environment is one that creates some pretty remarkable opportunities for the schools and the association to rethink and reconsider a lot of the long-standing components of what college sports has been about, Emmert said. I think that could be very exciting for where we are in college sports and what we can do. So from the very beginning of this statement, Emmert's trying to do two things here. One is to associate himself with what he wants people to believe as a 
positive movement forward on name, image, and likeness. There's no discussion about the history of how that issue evolved since 2019 and the fact that he was in large part responsible for the failure of the NCAA to to proactively put into place organic legislation that would have permitted name, image, and likeness compensation. And instead, they were hoping Congress was going to bail them out. And then when the deadline started to approach in the end of June, he just waved the white flag seven hours and 40 minutes before July 1st, when all these new nil laws were going to go into effect. But to read that framing, you would think that Mark Emmert was a visionary hero on name, image, and likeness. And then the the second thing he tries to accomplish is this upbeat approach to this messaging. It's not a failure of his leadership. He is looking forward and he's looking at remarkable opportunities. And he says, this could be very exciting for where we are in college sports and what we can do. And these are exclamatory phrases where Emmert is trying to present himself as the messenger of good news for college sports. So the statement goes on, Emmert emphasized that although the need for a federal nil law still exists, members of Congress still want more from NCAA member schools and conferences. And this is really the only direct reference to the NCAA's campaign in Congress. And so he's saying, yeah, Neil's great. Neil's a wonderful thing. And he's pumping it up at the beginning. Then he wanted to emphasize that we still need a federal nil law that would eliminate all of the the progress that was made. It would just wipe all these uh, state laws off the books. It would wipe the executive orders off the books and it would nullify all of these institutional policies. But he, he talks about that or the article talks about that in a very quiet way. And then mentions that Congress still wants more from NCAA members and conferences, I think, laying the foundation for an inevitable discussion in Congress through the thinking of people like Blumenthal and and Booker and the Athletes' Bill of Rights about more protections for athletes. So there's going to have to be a broader discussion, and this statement just eases that in. And then Emmert says, this is a quote, you can do one of two things. You can lean back and do nothing and wait and see what happens. Or you can say, look, this is a new era. We need to take advantage of it. When he's talking about you can lean back and do nothing, that's precisely what the NCAA has been doing for really 70 years when it comes to athletes' rights. And again, the the framing of his 180 from national authority to home rule is based on things that he's portraying as a good thing for athletes and progressive things for athletes and the modernization of rules and all of those things. Basically, what he's saying here is we did lean back. We did do nothing. And we waited to see what happens. And what happened was that we basically got cut off at the knees in Congress. We got cut off at the knees in the United States Supreme Court. The state laws went into effect and we completely lost control of the narrative. And now we are in a battle for relevance. So instead he says, well, let's look at this as a new era. And he's trying to be upbeat about it. Let's take advantage of it. But again, we wouldn't even be having this discussion and you wouldn't hear those words past Mark Emmert's lips. 
clips if the NCAA had gotten what it wanted from Congress and from the U.S. Supreme Court. And another interesting tidbit on this notion of just sitting back, doing nothing, and becoming a spectator to whatever is going to happen in uh, college sports. That's really exactly what the Board of Governors did in August of 2020. In their August 2020 board meeting, they issued a very interesting statement that got virtually zero coverage in the media. I, I wrote a blog post on it. And I said the NCAA Board of Governors places itself on administrative leave. But in this memo, they say that they had a strategic planning initiative underway, and it was well underway. And given the uncertainty, and they blamed a lot of this on on COVID and the financial uncertainty and all of the screaming and crying about the future of higher education and everybody was in gloom and doom. But they said, look, we're just going to suspend that um, strategic planning and we are going to sit back and wait to see what happens. And they said, we're going to do that for 12 to 24 months. And they identified a few things that they were going to continue to keep an eye on. And guess what those things were? Almost all of them related to the NCAA's quest for the iron throne of college sports regulation. And I'm going to do a separate episode on that document because it's worth a a deep dive. But one of the four things they said they were going to continue to look at were legal constraints, government relations, and realities. And they talk about the litigation issue. And they're painting with a broad brush and looking at it historically. And they say the financial impact of defending such fundamental concepts has fundamental concepts of their amateurism based principles and the collegiate model and the student athlete and all that stuff. But defending such fundamental concepts has eliminated the reserves of the association, impinged on the quality of the programs offered by the association, and pushed the support of legal defenses in some cases to conferences and institutional levels. Heaven forbid that the conferences or the institutions have to kick in for the legal fees that revenue-producing high-level Division I men's basketball is paying for. And then they go on to say, solutions to this growing and besieging problem must consider efforts to seek state and federal relief from what are often expensive and frequently frivolous legal attacks that consume resources and reduce opportunities. They're just on their high horse here. And they don't mention that this frivolous and besieging case called NCAA versus Austin is winding its way through the appellate process because the NCAA A has appealed the case. And I guess uh, in the NCAA's view of the world, a 9-0 opinion, a unanimous decision of the United States Supreme Court in favor of the athletes is frivolous and besieging litigation. But at the very end of that document, they say this, the pathway to a new normalcy across the broad spectrum of higher education and intercollegiate athletics is unclear even as we write and distribute this information. Ideas and input are expansive, important, and sometimes even contradictory. Our collective jobs over the next 12 to 24 months is to listen, learn, evaluate, accommodate, and look for the emerging way forward together. I mean, that is just an open admission that, you know, let's pop the popcorn. Let's uh, get our beverage of choice. Let's sit back, lean back, and we're just going to watch the show. That has been really the leading from behind element of this entire perfect storm that has come to define the NCAA's relationship to the entire business model and and the industry. And when I said early on in this podcast that this whole shooting match, the future 
future of college sports isn't being decided by level-headed, in-system stakeholders who are sitting down at conference tables and having meetings and having thoughtful, intelligent conversations. The future of college sports is being dictated by lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people. And this is essentially an admission of that. And I haven't heard anyone from the Board of Governors talk about this memo and talk about the fact that they explicitly suspended governance for 12 to 24 months. And now we're just kind of rolling into this constitutional committee as aimlessly as the NCAA got out of its governance authorities on August 4th of 2020. And again, I'll do an entirely separate episode on that August 4th document and that meeting. So let's get back to this Emmert statement from July 15th, just three days ago. And the statement goes on. He, referring to Emmert, went on to outline three priorities for the future, providing new opportunities for students, reconsidering the roles of conferences, schools, and the national office, and rethinking how non-revenue sports are supported. So those are very broad categories. And again, he offered very little in the way of detail. And the, the articles made that observation, at least. And then the statement breaks those three down, those three principles down into headings. And so the first one is on new opportunities for students. There's a quote from Emmert. And he says, I've been pushing for a notion that our core rule for student athletes should be that they are able to do anything that any other student can do unless there's a compelling reason not to. Nil is the perfect example of that. And that phraseology is directly lifted from statements that the NCAA's federal and state legislation working group made from the very beginning of their work in the fall of 2019 to suggest that the NCAA was trying to put into place nil opportunities so that athletes wouldn't be treated in a way that was less favorable than quote-unquote regular students. That was the, the selling point. And th- that part about, though, unless there's a compelling reason not to, the joke of the matter is in using that talking point from the fall of 2019 and repurposing it for this statement in July of 2021 is that Mark Emmert loses sight of what happened in between. And I've talked about this in other episodes, but this working group was very effective at creating narratives that were basically favorable to the compelling reason not to treat revenue-producing athletes like regular students. And the compelling reason is the NCAA's compensation limits. So all these quote-unquote guardrails that the NCAA built around name, image, and likeness were really designed to define the compelling reason not to provide no benefits that any other student could, could exploit. And that's just one of these uh, Orwellian ironies in the way that the NCAA pitched the nil issue from the very beginning. Yes, you can have name, image, and likeness opportunities, but only within guardrails that make it virtually impossible, like the collegiate model, like the student-athlete. And those principles simply can't coexist in any meaningful market of any type, nil or otherwise. But he pulled that right out of the archives. Then the second heading, reconsidering roles. And I think this went to the meat and potatoes of what he was trying to communicate to these reporters. And so Emmert says, I hope this creates some sense of urgency among the schools and membership to reconsider the roles of three key institutions, 
the national office, the conferences, and the schools. For decades, the tendency has been to move an issue up to a national rule. It should only be at the national level if that's the only way it can be enforced. Again, that is just a breathtaking misdirection here and a rewrite of history. So in looking at redefining the roles uh, among the national office, the conferences, and the schools, he's talking really about sending stuff back downstream that he suggests should never have been uh, part of the national office's role in the first place. That just flies in the face of the NCAA's 70-year power grab, 70-year rolling power grab to acquire as much authority within the NCAA umbrella as it possibly can. So he makes it appear as if the NCAA has been this unwilling participant in having these issues just shoved up to the national level. When the truth of the matter is that from Walter Byers to Dick Schultz to Cedric Dempsey to Miles Brand to Mark Emmert, the NCAA national office has been on a crusade to acquire as much national power and authority as it can get its hands on. And that's precisely what it was doing in its Senate campaign and in its campaign in the United States Supreme Court. So this is just a stunning misstatement that didn't get called out. And this one's pretty obvious. So I don't know if these reporters, maybe they asked him some questions. Who who knows? But that's that's just really that's a tough one to swallow. And then the next heading is rethinking non-revenue sports. And, and there's another quote from Emmert. And he says, we've had this tendency over decades to try to be as homogenous as we can and trying to treat every sport identically. This just doesn't work. We need to be ready to say field hockey is different from football. Wrestling is different from lacrosse. We need to think about some of them really differently than the way we approach football or basketball. It might include changing the way we look at the divisional models for these sports as well to make sure we're getting enough participation and we're accepting the responsibility to be partners in developing our Olympic national teams. Now, that one is just a mouthful. So there are several points that I need to make here with respect to that quote. He is trying to portray the conflation of interests between, say, Divisions 2 and Divisions 3 with the interests of high-level Division 1 as really not something that makes any sense. But by the same token, he has been trying to sell the big tent theory of NCAA governance to federal courts and to Congress and to any stakeholder that has really had any influence in college sports. So, Just in the uh, Senate testimony that he gave in February of 2020, and then again in June of 2021, Emmert was explicitly saying to the Senate that the NCAA needed national authorities to regulate at the national level because all of these interests, these various interests that any rational person looking at that model would say don't belong together, have been pitched as this one big happy amateurism family that can only be preserved through Congress granting the NCAA these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And while Emmert couches this in terms of non-revenue 
sports versus revenue sports. It's also relevant to the overall association-wide conflation of interests. And Emmert, in his congressional testimony, like in that February 2020 hearing in uh, a subcommittee of Senate Commerce, Emmert explicitly made the point that the only way to harmonize all the diverse moving parts in the NCAA system is through national agreement, a, a national form of governance. And he said that when that happens, then let's see, he says that the voluntary agreement to a central governing system offers a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. So, you know, where's that language? We don't get that. I think the other thing that's in this non-revenue sports section is that the NCAA in establishing its relevance is looking at the possibility of a market where football and basketball kind of further segregate themselves from the NCAA system, whether that's through the creation of a new division or the Power Five leaving the NCAA. Those issues are on the table now. And I think that that tension informs this quote and this spin on non-revenue sports. And then when he's talking about being partners in developing Olympic national teams, I construe that to mean that the NCAA is going to be making the case that they are really a, a central pipeline for Olympic sports. And that's a crucial role that they play. And that would be an independent justification for their role as a national governing authority. But, you know, we'll see how this plays out. But one of the things that I think is important to to look at in connection with how he pitches the non-revenue sports issue is that all of these structural changes that he's talking about, whether it's sending more responsibility downstream or looking at the relationship between revenue and non-revenue sports or the relationship between Division three products and high-level Division one products, all of those issues have been relevant in college sports for decades. And there have been external commentators who have really pushed for the NCAA to look honestly at how ill-suited all those component parts are to live under the same umbrella. It just doesn't make sense. So in 2019 and then in in Congress in 2020 and throughout the campaign in the Senate, even through the hearings that occurred just a month before this statement comes out, the NCAA isn't saying boo about the structural component of the business model and the governance model and the responsibilities and roles of the in-system stakeholders. Where was this discussion, the discussion that that is uh, contained in this statement, this July 15th statement, where was that in February of 2020? Where was that in June of uh, 2021? And it is relevant independent of name, image, and likeness. It's relevant independent of any of the things that have played out in the perfect storm. This is a long-standing structural issue and, and a structural defect in the whole business of big-time college sports that the NCAA has ignored consistently. And when external uh, interests have made the very same arguments that Emmert is now making in this July 15th interview, the NCAA has said, no way. 
We're happy with the one big tent, the big tent and the one big happy amateurism family. I think that is just reflects the NCAA's refusal to look at the obvious defects in its thinking and its business model unless it is forced to. And now it is forced to. I think that institutional resistance and stubbornness is just part of the way that bureaucracies operate. They want to chug along with a status quo that they are comfortable with, that they're happy with, that they're benefiting from, and they will not proactively make any change to that status quo with from within. It, it's got to come from external pressure and external threats. And that's where the NCAA is right now because it has completely mismanaged those external threats. And now they are more potent than ever, which is why you're, you're seeing this really fundamental shift in messaging. And again, I think this is for public relations purposes. It remains to be seen whether any of these big principles ever get put into NCAA practice or policy or the, the actual structure of college sports. And to that point, the last section of this statement is titled Timeline. And the statement says, the NCAA is a membership-driven association, meaning the rules are created and enforced by member schools and conferences. Emmert added that any changes to rules will come from them, and he understands it will take time. And again, that is just a profoundly misleading statement. He's back to the same thing that Miles Brand did in the early 2000s when he was deflecting pressure from the NCAA office and that Mark Emmert has trotted out again and again. We're just doing the will of the people. The NCAA president's not some omnipotent czar. The national office isn't here to solve all the membership's problems and this has to come from the membership. And that is just a false narrative because the Power Five are driving whatever is happening behind the scenes here. They're going to be calling the shots. They've taken over control of the NCAA governance process. They basically own the national office, at least the football answers do, post Board of Regents and with a football market that operates entirely outside of the NCAA, even though all the big time powerful football schools are under the NCAA administrative umbrella. But this just misstates how things are done, how things get done within the NCAA. And the people who are really calling the shots, and that's the Power Five conference commissioners, the Power Five athletics directors, and to a lesser extent, the Power Five university presidents, they want to preserve the, the status quo. And if the status quo under the NCAA umbrella isn't working for, for them, they will change it. They will either find some way to change it within the existing NCAA structure or they will move outside of it because they are not going to give up their money and their power and they may be okay with home rule. Who knows? It's not clear where the Power Five is on this. And that's one of the big question marks in all of what's happened in the last three months, the summer of 2021, is that this whole relationship between the Power Five and the NCAA national office and the big time football revenue and the March Madness contract is playing out and it's playing out behind the scenes. We don't really have a, a chair at the table to know exactly what the thinking is and, and what the options are. That's going to dictate the future of college sports, not a disingenuous press release from Mark Emmert. And then he closes this out to say, 
I think this is a multi-year process. We need to have a lot of schools participating and thinking about this, Emmert said. But this is the time to start reconsidering these things. At least he fell back on to start reconsidering instead of time to keep thinking differently. This is this is just amazing stuff. But what's interesting about that time frame is that kind of flows along Mark Emmert's contract. Remember that in April of 2021 at the Board of Governors meeting, they very quietly gave Mark Emmert a contract extension to 2025. So if part of Emmert's positioning here is that, yeah, we're really thinking about some big picture stuff and we understand that it's time for change. And this time we really mean it. We really, really mean it. We're going we're gonna to sit down and we're going to look at the options and we're going to come up with a, a new and improved NCAA governance model. You may be able to, to, to fend off some of these external regulatory threats that you didn't really deal with successfully in, in 2020, and namely the United States Congress. And remember, too, that one of the NCAA's most effective strategies to beat back any forced change from the outside has been to promise and delay, promise and delay, and then promise again and delay. And they did that really going back to the this BCS transition from the Bowl Alliance to the Bowl Championship Series when the big-time powerful football interests were getting heat from Congress because the have-nots in that equation were saying they were being frozen out and they were raising some antitrust concerns. And the NCAA went in and said, we're going to take care of it, trust us. And they made some promises and then they delayed. It promise and delay. The name, image, and likeness issue as it played out from the, the middle of 2019 through to the present was a game of promise and delay. And the delay, the promise was to get stakeholders to think that the NCAA had a genuine interest in offering name, image, and likeness opportunities for athletes and that they were going to voluntarily change their own rules to put into legislation these opportunities. And it never happened. To this day, it hasn't happened. This interim policy is not a rules change. And the purpose of that promise was to get enough time, to buy enough time for the NCAA to get what it wanted in Congress. And it failed. It failed. It didn't get it. And then we had the flip in in the Congress. and, And I've talked about that at length. So what is the NCAA doing now? I think this could very easily be read, could be appropriately read as another promise and delay. So yeah, we're looking at these big picture issues and we really care about change. And this time we're, we're serious. I mean, gosh darn, by gum, we're serious. So just give us some time, give us some breathing room, give us some time. And if that is on the, the timeline of, of Mark Emmert's uh, presidency, then you have some other things that, that, that could be happening. And I've talked in another episode about the midterm elections coming up here just around the corner. And if the Republicans regain control of the Senate, and I think it would be a long shot for them to get the House, but if they regain control of the Senate, I think you could see the NCAA coming right back in, laying the foundation for a bill that, if they can pitch as bipartisan, has some chance of getting bicameral approval and and then could be signed by President Biden. 
And you can't rule that out. And one of the ironies of this statement is that while Emmert's making all these bold promises about this fundamental transformation of the entire business of college sports and the roles of the important stakeholders, rest assured that the NCAA is going back to Congress at some point, probably in the fall, and they're going to be asking one way or another for the very things they were asking for in February of 2020. And all those things go to basically granting them the exclusive authority as a national regulatory authority to have iron-fisted control over the college sports marketplace. And that goal is fundamentally inconsistent with what Mark Embert is saying in this press release. They're going back. And their lobbyists are working double time to try to create a clear path to getting a piece of legislation that gets them some piece of what they want, whether it's preemption only, which is where they landed in June as a last ditch effort to try to stop these name, image and likeness laws, or whether they're going to try to make a play for antitrust immunity or athletes can't be employees. Who knows? But they're going back to this. They're going to go back to the same place that they were from the very beginning, because that's just the way the NCAA rolls. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this thing out. We'll keep an eye on this, because I think there are going to be some interesting developments coming up here on the horizon. And as this all plays out, I think we'll get a better sense of where the Power Five and the NCAA are uh, in relationship to each other. And, And that really is one of the most important pieces of the puzzle here, regardless of what may or may not happen in Congress. And and then again, we also have this House lawsuit out in California that I talked about that has potential to be a game changer. But I'm always cautious to say that about federal litigation, because uh, so often the cases that look like they were going to be real game changers uh, ended in a whimper. But we'll see. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.